Stop drinking boring coffee. Experience the gnarly benefits of badass beans. There's a kind of coffee 9 to 5 sip when lying heavily on their horn, screeching their way through traffic to another soul-sucking day working for the man. That's lame. Then there's fuck yeah coffee. The kind of coffee Indiana Jones would drink before embarking on a turbulent quest through a dangerous lost empire guarded by a supernatural power. Now that's badass. Like a mixtape that effortlessly cues the right vibes, Fuck Yeah Coffee manages to balance a rich, robust taste with an extra kick of caffeine to fuel your adventure wherever it takes you. Premium medium roast, brown, dark brown, twice as much caffeine as a normal cup of coffee. We teamed up with the discerning palates of the Black Rifle Coffee Company. Churning out a ridiculously good tasting coffee was a given. So rest assured, these carefully selected 100% Colombian coffee beans have been roasted to taste master perfection. Mm, that's good. But we wanted more. So we took those delicious coffee beans and blended them with a pure concentrated caffeine crystal. More than a ridiculously delicious cup of joe, every sip of fuck yeah coffee delivers twice as much caffeine. That's twice as much caffeine to fill your workouts, twice as much caffeine to use your body as an instrument to achieve greatness, no matter how that looks in your day to day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fuck yeah. Learn more at onit.com slash F asterisk CK dash Y-E-A-H. You may not realize it, but the average American blasts their eyes with bright screens for 11 hours a day. When you consider how much our day revolves around our devices, it doesn't seem so crazy. I got a lot of Apple products, iPhone, iPad, iMac, MacBook Air, and TV, and all this other shit. So <laughs> Netflix and chill, uh, we're bombarded with bright light. The fact is we can't eliminate extensive screen time for our lives in the modern era, but you can protect your eyes from it with a pair of Felix Gray blue light filtering glasses available in non-prescription and prescription. So you got eye issues, need a prescription, they got you. These are by far the best looking glasses I've ever seen, uh, regardless of blue light emitting or not. They're absolutely incredible. Head over to felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash Kyle for free shipping and 30 days of risk-free returns or exchanges. Hey there, guys. We've got Dr. Mike T. Nelson in the house. Dr. Mike T. Nelson was also a gimme at Paleo FX where somebody was like, actually, it was Dr. Michael Ruscio was like, yo, you got to have this guy on the show. And Dr. Mike T. Nelson was a speaker on a panel with me, and we really got to know each other through our advice to the masses. So people had questions. There's moderators for these panels at Paleo FX in case you've never been. And they prompt you with some pretty basic ass questions, if I'm being perfectly honest. What's cool is to see where these other panelists take their answers. And I drew a lot from Mike T. Nelson. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge. He's pretty much steeped in the science of performance. And it's really cool to see how we can take somebody from A to Z who's never done shit, but also how we can take an athlete who's already pretty good at performance and push them a little bit further. We get some very practical stuff in this episode, how-tos for cardio and for optimizing HRV, all the way to aerobic base building and lactate threshold, all the good stuff's in here. I know you guys are going to dig it. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Mike T. Nelson is in the house, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. It's going Appreciate great, it, man. I just realized that uh, you know you were, you were recommended me to by my friend Dr. Michael Ruscio, yeah, who you've been working closely with, and then we just had a guy named Michael Trainer on uh, <laughs> literally this morning. It's like <laughs> I'm fucking surrounded by mics everywhere. I turn. Everywhere you can't get away from us. <laughs> like, I certainly can't. We spoke on a panel about some really important shit, yeah, uh, at, at Paleo FX, and I think 
you can always tell, and I'd heard a lot about you, but you can always tell someone's wealth of knowledge. We were getting very basic questions uh, on, you know, some of the foundations of health. And even one of the questions threw me for a loop. It was, it had to do with, uh, you know, if somebody who's never lifted weights before and is not in shape and is living on the standard American diet, diet what's the first thing that you go over with them? And, uh, you know, you could take that answer anywhere. Oh, yeah. Anywhere. But I think you talked about the breath, which... Yeah, breathing. Which is, yes. It is. It's like, yeah, <laughs> fuck weights, fuck all this other stuff. Yeah. Like, that's the number one thing. And, and you know, well, the guy, the reason you've been waiting an extra hour is because I was just on a podcast with Paul Check and Aubrey Marcus. And uh, he, you know, that, that really resonates with me, that concept of, as you mentioned, you go without food, you can do that for a month. Maybe yeah. longer. You go without water. Your record you gotta, is over a year. Medical right. supervised fast. That's right. Yeah. You drop from 400 plus down yes. to 185. Yeah, you know it. Um, and no stretch marks either. You know, you, your skin was actually shrinking too because yeah. the body digested itself properly. But, you know, that's without food, without water, days. Right. Without air, minutes. 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 Yeah. World record, breath hold, unassisted. I want to say is. Someone will correct me, but 12-ish minutes, 10-ish minutes, maybe maybe a little less than that. I think assisted with oxygen is up in 21-ish minutes, I think, somewhere in there. I don't have the exact times. How do they assist with oxygen if you're not breathing? Is it intravenous? It's beforehand. So oh, okay. they hyperventilate on oxygen to clear out CO2. Yeah, so uh, Wim so Hof style or holotropic breathing? Uh, they'll actually use oxygen, like, oh, assist, okay. like oxygen tanks. Okay. Um, because you can get a little bit more in with a higher pressure. It's mm. so like when David Blaine did his stunt, um, that's what he did also. So you can get longer, but in my opinion, the risk gets a lot higher because you're kind of circumventing some of those natural protective loops in the body. And you can, you have a higher risk of just passing out underwater too. So, Okay. Well, I definitely want to get more into the breath work and covering the basics, which I think yeah. are incredibly important for everybody. But first, let's get your background. Like what got you into health and wellness and really starting to sort out and become a, you know, a trainer to the stars. <laughs> yeah. Most of it, like probably most trainers was just me trying to figure myself out and probably still is to a large degree. Um, so when I was a kid, I actually had what's called a lazy eye or a strabismus. So my eyes didn't track together at all. And what they did then is they would patch the quote unquote good eye to make the quote unquote bad eye work more. And then once your eyes track normal, they go, aha, we fixed the issue. Don't worry about it. Um, before that, when I went into optometrist's office, they did this little test and I was four years old. They hold up this little dog at the end and they asked me, they're like, you know, how many of these do you see? And I guess I told my parents, I'm like, well, two, but only one of them's real. <laughs> because when you interact with your environment, if I see two of those water bottles, I go to interact with my environment. I learn what's the real image and what's the false image, right? Because I can only grab the real image. So proprioceptively, the world starts to kind of match up with only one of the images. But the brain doesn't want to be confused. So what it does then, it actually does, is called the visual suppression. So even now, I can see good out of my right eye. I can see good out of my left eye. But when those images go to the back of the brain, my right eye actually sits up and out. I have a vertical and horizontal deviation. So those two images are skewed much farther than what they should be. Mm. Right. So normally we've got two eyes and they're offset a little bit. The images are offset just a bit. <clears throat> the brain takes both images, fuses them together. And that's what we perceive as 3D vision. In my case, they were skewed so much. I was seeing double vision. My brain couldn't fuse those two images together. 
And so the brain solution long term then is, well, screw it. I'll just drop one of the images, right? I'll suppress, in my case, the image from the right eye. So if I close my eye, boom, my brain can switch to the other eye. Close this eye, boom, it can switch to the other eye. But both of them together, it's too confusing. I would see in double vision, so it suppresses it. What happens then is you go from binocular vision to basically monocular. So for me, although I'm much better now than it used to be, it's kind of like walking around with one eye closed all the time. Super hard with depth perception. Yeah, I don't technically, I don't have depth perception per se. And what's fascinating is I didn't realize any of this until I was like in my late 20s. So even driving a car, I didn't figure it out because it's, I was horrible at it. I scared the crap out of my parents. And I just thought, well, I've never driven a car. I, I just suck, right? So playing ball sports, I thought, oh yeah, kids who are not very athletic, they get hit in the face with balls all the time. That's just normal. That's what happens to them. And then later I realized, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not really normal. Um, and when I was four and a half, I actually had open heart surgery. So I had what's called an ASD, atrial septal defect. And I was born, there's a chamber in the middle of the heart that separates oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. So when you're in the womb, you're obviously, you go back to breathing, you're not breathing, right? Because the blood's just flowing around in a circle. The heart's still beating, but it doesn't have to go through the lungs. Second you're born, now you start to breathe air. Those uh, holes in the chambers, the septums actually start to close up. So now your body can keep the oxygenated and deoxygen blood from mixing together. Uh, in my case, the atrium, there's a hole between the two sides, left atrium, right atrium. So now I've got oxygenated and deoxygenated blood mixing all the time, which makes the heart super inefficient. And I actually had uh, basically congestive heart failure. And my heart, when I was four, was the size of someone who was 18. So the heart gets bigger and bigger and bigger because it's inefficient. It's doing a lot more work. So I went in and they do thoracotomies. They crack your chest open, go in and they stitched it up. So I was in the hospital for probably about like 10 days. I still have little twist ties, you know, to wire your sternum back together and that sort of thing. And so lo and behold, fast forward, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, minor in chemistry, minor in math, and then did two years of pre-engineering work. Went to graduate school for a master's in mechanical engineering, kind of biomechanics stuff. And I ended up working for a medical device company actually in cardiology for like 10 years. All right, so you think back on all the stuff that happens to you as a kid and how that sort of, it's not really even a, a conscious thing that you kind of even realize at that point. So that kind of pushes you off to that direction. And at the same time, I was just super interested in physiology. Like I took anatomy and physiology as an undergrad just for fun. You know, so where I did um, my undergrad in Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota, anyone could walk in and take anatomy and physiology, and you actually worked on cadavers, which was very, very rare. Probably still is. You know, most of the time, if you go to physical therapy or go to be a physician or whatever, then you kind of work on cadavers. It's not really part of an undergrad curriculum. Uh, where there it was, and you didn't even have to formally be in that program. So I just started taking stuff for fun. I actually just wandered into exercise physiology when I was doing my uh, master's. I just called a guy and I'm like, hey, can I take exercise phys? He's like, wait, wait, what's your major? I said, oh, I'm doing a master's in mechanical engineering. He's like, you have none of the prereqs. This is like a 400 level class. I'm like, I don't care about any of the grades. I just want to audit it. Can I just like, just take the class? And he looks, he goes, but you've maxed out your credits. I'm like, oh, he's like, wait a minute, so you just want to come to the class for fun and you have no background in it and you don't care about the credits? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that sounds pretty good. Just show up at this time and I won't really kick you out of the class. I'm like, oh, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> um, 
just kind of been interested in all that. I did five years as a PhD program in biomedical engineering. Ended up dropping out of that because I didn't really want to do any more uh, hardcore mathematics stuff. I went over and did started a PhD in exercise physiology, uh, looking at heart rate variability and metabolic flexibility. And so it took me about seven years to finish that and started working with clients since 2006. So I've been always interested in what is the kind of the gap or the how do you hybridize both academics and real world practice? Like, how do you get them to flow kind of together? Because everything I saw was very split. Like even in the lab I was in, students would come in and they'd be like, hey, you know, how do you this or this or that exercise technique? And these are exercise physiology people, but it was kind of more of a practicality question. And the running joke in the lab was, oh, you got to ask Mike. Like the other people like we're doing cardiovascular research, research on exercise and cancer. So even though they were in exercise phys, they know they didn't really ever have to apply it in terms of how a trainer would apply the stimulus of exercise to clients. So even at like kind of the highest level, there was still a very odd disconnect, in my opinion, from the real world. And, you know, granted, they're going off to be, you know, researchers in different areas. So you could argue it's probably not super practical to them. Uh, but I always thought that was just, I don't know, to me, it always seemed weird. <laughs> yeah, like they're missing the mark. Yeah, yeah. And part of that was just, again, to solve my own issues. You know, I started college, um, like six foot three, same height that I was now, and I weighed a whole 156 pounds. This is like in my first year of college. So I had passed all my, you know, growth spurts and all that kind of stuff. And I'm still like a eel-shaped rake. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of it was just, I remember taking my first exercise um, class to show you how to do training, which was more of a FIA type credit. And I remember the guy, the, prof- the professor walking in, who's actually the track coach, and he's looking around. He's like, all right, some of you need to lose weight. And then he looks at me and goes, holy shit, some of you need to gain weight. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> All right, guys, quick break to tell you about Organifi. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. They are an amazing supplement company that's making all sorts of really cool powders and drinks that add functionality and ease to your life. The Turmeric Gold is one of my favorite drinks. It's got lemon balm in it. It's a perfect nightcap to help me relax and unwind. Also highly anti-inflammatory and good for the brain. They've got green juice where you can get an assortment of greens powders all mixed into one with uh, high antioxidant levels. They have the red juice, which I use for energy. It's great pre-workout. And they've got many other amazing products, including probably my favorite liver detox ever created. For 20% off everything they sell, go to Organifi.com and punch in code word Kyle at checkout. That's 20% off everything in the store. Easy peasy. Well, let's jump in here now. You train some really prominent people and you have a wealth of knowledge when it comes to many of the topics that I want to get into. Sure. But um, we touched a little bit on the basics. When you first take somebody in uh, and you're working with them, what are some of the things that you're looking for when it comes to assessment? Because we're going to talk about, yeah, totally. we've been greenlit from our boy, Dr. <laughs> Michael Ruscio, to go into some of the ways that you fixed his imbalances. And I think that's, it's something that we can't always see in and of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, where, how, what is our pelvic tilt? Uh, what is our neck posture? Where, yeah. where, where are all these things sitting in the body that can lead to injury if we're not paying attention? So walk us through kind of how you assess people and what are some of the, the, the prominent fixes and solutions to those problems? Yeah. So I just redid my whole assessment again. 
And the assessment I do in person is very different from the one I do online. So in person is much more of the mechanic side because you actually have the person in front of you. You can get them to do a squat. You can get them to do a deadlift. You can just look at general movement patterns, gait, things of that nature. Um, online is a little bit harder to do that. You can kind of get at some of it. So for online, I use just a static posture position. Um, I have them do uh, like a it's a PRI toe touch, so PRI Postural Restoration Institute. It's a very specific squat test that they do. And all it's looking at is angle of the pelvis in relation to how you can squat down, right? So you're trying to get an idea of how their pelvis is playing with their squat position. And usually you can just have someone do a bodyweight squat from the side and from the front, and you can see what's kind of going on and see where they kind of run out of space, be it the ankle, the knees, their pelvis is tilted super far forward. Usually I'll ask them like, hey, are your hamstrings tight? They're like, yeah, how did you know that? And it's like, well, because the angle of the pelvis is tilted forward, the insertion of the hamstring is on the back. So you're walking around with your hamstrings basically pre-stretched all the time. So of course, they're going to appear kind of tight. Um, then from there on the performance side, metabolic stuff, I got this primarily from Dr. Kenneth Jay, who does the Kerrigan Institute, the human performance program, which I help with the nutrition recovery part of that program too is just a whole assessment if they're more on the metabolic side. So even if they're on body composition or uh, CrossFit or MMA or obstacle course racing or whatever, I'm very interested in what are the uh, metabolism and bioenergetics. So everything from 100 meter on the rower, which is just all out, how fast can you do 100 meters to a different series, what's called the Wingate test. I don't know if you've ever done a Wingate test before. I'm not. Yeah, it's 30 seconds. And in the lab, we have these super specialized bike we use. So in the lab, we used to do them all the time. And the running joke was we'd have a pool to see how many people would puke. So we'd actually do kind of informal <laughs> betting to see how many pukers we would get. So we were testing it in the lab on students for them to get practice. And we were next to the uh, strength and conditioning, uh, which was Cal Dietz and his staff at the time. We were in the same building. So we actually shared the same bathroom. So one of his staff comes down in the lab one day. I see him poke his head in and kind of laugh and then uh, walks out. And I, I caught him later. I said, hey, Kevin, what were you doing? He's like, oh, uh, someone was puking in the bathroom. So I figured we had a bet that it was Wingate Day. So I wanted to check to see if it was. And he's like, I won. It was Wingate Day. <laughs> <laughs> so you put him on a bike, pedal as fast as you possibly can. And then you have this weight that gets dropped onto a flywheel that takes the resistance from, you know, maybe 50, 100 watts to like several hundred watts, like instantaneous. And then you just keep pedaling as hard as you can for 20 to 30 seconds. Or if you're doing it on a rower, you do your warm up, get all warmed up. And then when you hit go, just row as hard as you can for 30 seconds. So the 30 seconds is very much a lactate accumulation test. What sort of power can you create? And on a bike and even on a rower, it like you get 10 seconds in, you're like, ah, oh, this is good. This isn't that bad. Woohoo. 20 seconds in, you're like, oh my God, someone replaced my legs with concrete. In the last few seconds, you're just, it's really, really hard. Um, so I'll do that for 30 seconds, and then they'll do one for 60 seconds. And then I'll even have them do one for uh, three minutes. So the three-minute one is brutal, because you'll get to about max lactate levels in 60 seconds, and then you have two minutes to try to hold that level. So what I'm looking at in the test is how much power can they create? How long can they kind of hold that power, what sometimes referred to as critical power? 
So if you have an athlete that's a speed and power athlete, that's going to be pretty important. Uh, even someone who's not, if I just see him go up and then just, just completely fall apart, I know that that area of metabolism, they're just kind of missing. And then we'll do even like uh, 2K on a rower. You can take the 2K performance time and get their VO2 max. So how well can they use oxygen? So kind of a aerobic baseline marker. And uh, Concept2 has some very good stats on that, that I can then take that number, translate it to a VO2 max. And there's lots of very normative data on that. So I can tell someone, hey, you know, you're in like the 20% for like aerobic capacity. You know, you're pretty low. Or if they're consequently already pretty good, you're like, hey, you know, you're in the 75 percentile. Your goal is more speed and power. Okay, let's just try to maintain that quality. We're not going to worry much about it. Um, so I run through a whole bunch of tests on that. Um, whatever the priority is for lifting, I'll have them do probably a three to five rep max. If they're experienced athlete, I'll have them work up and do a one rep max. Uh, film that from the front and then the side. And then I have some other stuff like I have one question I'll ask them of, you know, what is the number one exercise you think is most responsible for your results? And because that's more of a, actually on the psychology side. So if they tell me, oh, bro, it's, you know, one arm standing on a BOSU ball, left pink dumbbell curls. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> I'm probably still going to put it in their program, right? Because for whatever screwball reason, they think that that thing is the most important thing that's responsible for their results. So first thing you're going to do, pay me a whole bunch of money. I send them a program. They're going to look to see if that thing is in there, right? Did this person actually listen to what I told them? And if it's not in there, they're going to be like, oh, this guy's an idiot. I told him the number one thing. He doesn't even bother to include it in my program. Uh, same thing for uh, nutrition. What is the number one food that you do not want to be removed from your diet? If they tell me pizza or whatever the interesting concoction you're eating before the show was, I'm probably going to put it in their diet, right? Even if they have some weird adverse reaction to it, I'll kind of deal with that, you know, later as a side note, I'll keep track of it. But if I remove that right away, yeah, you can kind of poke and prod them and do some stuff for a couple of weeks, but it's not going to be a long-term sustainable thing. Um, last couple of things I have in there too is from uh, Patrick McEwen. Do something called a bolt test, and it's you're probably familiar with it. So you kind of breathe in, breathe out, rest at state in the morning, and then just stop and exhale. Then see how long can you go, and then breathe normally again. What you're trying to get at is the buildup levels of CO2. You're trying to get a rough proxy for how well can their body actually handle uh, CO2 in relation to breathing. So if that test comes back and it's like five seconds, oh boy, they have probably some aerobic issues. They probably breathe through their mouth. They're probably not sleeping good. They probably have a host of other things. If it comes back and they're like 30 seconds, you know, eh, they're probably doing pretty good with breathing and that type of thing. Um, if they're in person, I can get even fancy as doing stuff like a moxie test. I can stick a sensor on their quad or any muscle I want. I have three of them. And it'll tell blood flow and it'll tell oxygen delivery um, and how much oxygen is going in. Um, and I also just bought a metabolic cart too. So you can do um, whole level of VO2 testing, uh, resting metabolic testing, and then look at what fuel they're actually using, fats versus carbohydrates. Um, so for online, I try to get as much of the stuff I can do in person with fancy equipment. Try to get some proxy markers for that. And it takes about a week for them to do all of that stuff. 
um, which is pretty, pretty intense. And it's not a lot of fun. Like if you've done lactate stuff before, it's freaking miserable. It's not a lot of fun. Um, but at the end of it, I have a very complete picture of where their strength levels are. There's even some normative data you compare that to. And I know about where they are compared to normative data, where they are with uh, different bioenergetic systems. And then I kind of plug that into where they want to go in relative relation to their goals. Kind of long-winded answer. That no, thank you. That has that is <laughs> super super in depth and awesome. Uh, where's your where's your where do you do this if somebody can meet you in person? Yeah, I'm in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, in White Bear Lake. Well, I'm yeah. never out that way, but I might have to make I might have to make a trip. Garage, so. Yeah, just to, just to come <laughs> in. Um, I want to talk a bit. Of, so uh, first, you know, something you'd mentioned with that breath test. Yeah. That's from the Oxygen Advantage with Patrick McCown. It's a great book to read. Um, once you have this kind of data on people, what are some of the ways that you start to change? Obviously, that's goal dependent. You know, if you have sure. somebody that's training for the Ironman, that's going to look different than somebody who's trying to, you know, increase his PR on deadlift. Yeah. But uh, strictly speaking on the breath work, CO2 retention, things like that, how do you train really to improve that score? Yeah. So the reason that CO2 retention, this is kind of hypothetical, is important is if I have a Moxie device, I can look to see blood flow, I can see how much oxygen is being delivered. Um, so the first time I was tested on this was by uh, Aaron Davis, Train Adapt Evolve. And I myself was leaving about 35% of oxygen bound as it kind of whizzes by the muscle, right? So I tell clients, it's like, okay, if your job is you're a mover and you've got a moving truck and you've got to move three people that day, you go to the first house, the moving truck's empty, that's easy. Load all your crap in, load it off at the next place. But now what if the next place leaves 30% of their shit on the truck? Now you got to go to the second place and you got 30% of someone else's crap already on your truck. Now you can only get 70% of it off and it kind of builds up. So if you can't desaturate that oxygen to a pretty low level, you're kind of leaving oxygen to be not as effective. So then you go, okay, what is the thing that primarily drives that from muscle level? And it's actually a passive process. And it has to do with the Bohr effect in relation to CO2. So paradoxically, if I have a higher level of CO2 locally, that'll drive more oxygen off into the muscle. And breathing-wise, if their CO2 levels are not correct, their desaturation is probably not very good. So again, back to your question, well, what the hell do you do with that then? So the things I look at are, one, usually their aerobic training is not very good. So we're going to start doing more aerobic training, usually very lower intensity, kind of longer, slower distance stuff. Uh, I do agree with uh, like you have Brian McKenzie and Rob Wilson on here. Mm -hmm. I love those guys. Uh, probably nasal breathing because uh, for a while it was kind of big into you know, the spiro tiger, there's power lung, there's other things for respiratory muscle training might be useful. But then you're like, I listened to some Brian stuff and Rob's. I'm like, oh. You mean your nose? Maybe I should just breathe through that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a you know, pretty good CrossFit athlete the other day do this. I said, okay, I just want you 20 minutes on the rower. I just want you to breathe through your nose. And he's got you know pretty good power output. His stats are pretty darn good. He's like, oh my God. He's like, I feel like I'm drowning in air. You know, <laughs> it's very hard to someone who's not used to it. But yeah. what are you doing? You're purposely restricting airflow to purposely build up CO2 levels. And if you go think about, well, why is that so horrible? Because CO2 is the primary driver to breathe. Actually, not oxygen. Oxygen is a backup kind of, 
chemoreceptive sensing uh, unit. So you're purposely building up more and more and more CO2, and you're trying to change that sort of central perception of what is a normal CO2 level. And that's primarily more at the brainstem. So over time, people get accustomed to higher levels of CO2. They have that at the muscle level. They can desaturate oxygen better. And that's a passive process. It doesn't really require any more energy. So nasal breathing appears to help with that. Um, that's, I would say, still theoretical, but uh, I've done a fair amount of it. I know Brian's done a lot of it. Rob's done a lot of it. Uh, my buddy Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota, has done a lot of it. Uh, for low-intensity work, it seems to make a pretty big uh, difference. Um, the other part I'll do is I'll have them do kind of their own hands-on work. There's a system called RPR, Reflexive Performance Reset. And they'll do work like on their sternum, maybe some pectoralis inserts, kind of diaphragm stuff, maybe even some uh, just in the stomach area, so to speak, visceral stuff. And what you're doing is you're trying to activate the diaphragm and get the lungs to actually move better via getting the rib cage to move better. And so you're trying to enhance the mechanics, right? So if you look at how most people breathe, their you know, ear, ear lobes are too close to their shoulders. These muscles that run to the top part of the rib cage are doing a lot of the work. So the classic upper chest breathing. Um, and then people will shift to be what's called belly breathing. And I think the reality is you want a hybrid of both, right? You want that diaphragm to pull under negative pressure air in, and you will have some movement in the belly area. But you really want the rib cage to be a 360 degree expansion. Um, so you don't really want to be entirely belly breathing or upper chest. You want those mechanics to be better. What happens with that is you're able to move more air in and out. And that makes a pretty big difference with that. Um, those are probably the main ones I've seen uh, move the needle on that. You can get fancier. You can do some of um, potentially, I don't know if you would say it's hypoxic training, but longer breath holds. You can do some of the Wim Hof style <clears throat> where you're trying to move people either hyperventilate or you know hypoventilate, different things like that. And you can get kind of fancy. But I find in general, nose breathing helps quite a bit, lower intensity aerobic work, and then just getting better uh, rib mechanics. If you've got someone locally that can help you with that, you know, that makes a big difference too. Yeah, most certainly. That's something that <clears throat> well, we've had, you know, Mackenzie and uh, Rob Wilson here yes. yeah, yeah. a couple years now, and they'll, they'll put on the Art of Breath seminar. And one of the first things they take us through is that kind of that gut smash. Yep. Where you get in there. Yeah, and of Jim course, Miller stuff. Yeah. And then yeah, they, yeah. we use the yoga tune up balls. I actually like this this thing. It's called the Orb. It's, hmm. uh, it's at a lot of running gyms, but okay. it's kind of like a soft. Um, it's, not, it's not as soft as the gorgeous. Joe Miller okay, ball, yeah, yeah, but it, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more for hardcore manly for, men. Yeah, exactly. It's for, <laughs> it's for the alpha males that just want to destroy their psoas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that seems to unlock things for me in yeah. ways where it really helps my squat. It really helps me take deep, full breaths where I don't feel like I'm actually trying to exert myself to fill my lungs. Um, all that's beneficial. I think, you know, people are wondering like, why, why is it important? Is it, is it the feel? Is it the mental to be able to withstand higher levels of CO2. But something that Patrick McKeown goes into is that if your CO2 levels are off, as you mentioned, you're not going to be using utilizing oxygen the way that you normally can. Correct. So that's well, that's one of the reasons why Brian and Rob will say, you know, if you're in between sets and you've got a one-minute break in between rounds or you're in between a squat set, if you're really dying for air, you can take a few deep breaths to kind of recalibrate, but then start to shift gears back down to yeah. in through the nose, out through the mouth, and then in through the nose, out through the nose. And even if it hurts 
to painfully raise that CO2, you're going to get more out of the oxygen in your blood if you can do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's again, there's not a, I'd say a ton of research in that area in terms of, you know, randomized control trials, that type of stuff. Uh, respiratory muscle training is all, it's just completely hit or miss. But from what we understand about physiology, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and again, a lot of anecdotal work from a lot of people I've heard, just even stuff I've done myself, it, it appears to make a pretty big difference. And then once you get that, if you think also about stress response, right? So if I'm breathing through my mouth or breathing through my nose, breathing through my mouth is going to be more stressful, right? And we know that by looking at heart rate variability as a marker of stress, it's very much tied to breathing, which is why some of the apps, when you measure it, will have what's called paced breathing. You breathe in and out at a set rate to make sure that breathing doesn't affect your measurement, mm. right? And everyone's had this, just sit in a chair, have your watch on and just start breathing faster, your heart rate goes up. Right. So if you can get control of that breath, you can play around <clears throat> with heart rate also at the same time. So let, let's jump right into to heart rate variability. You've obviously have done an ex, some, some extensive work yeah. with it. Um, I find it fascinating. You know, I know that that Brian's not a huge fan of some of the technology, but I I think Whoop Watch, uh, Oring's good. I love I absolutely love the Whoop. I think it's the best thing out there for activity tracking and they measure HRV 100 times per second. Yep. Um, what do you find beneficial in tracking that? And, and again, as you alluded to with breathwork, what are some of the ways that you can help somebody shift that score? Because, you know, uh, I think Brian is correct. I'm in agreement with him in that, you know, if you wake up and your HRV is a little low, but you feel good and you want to go hard, you know, that shouldn't be the only cause for, for what you do that day. Correct. If you feel good and you want to go, it doesn't mean like, oh, well, looks like I'll try to max out tomorrow if my HRV yeah, yeah. score is a little bit better. <laughs> like, no, man, you're planning on maxing out and you feel good. Yeah. Go for it. But what are some of the ways that we can improve HRV in real time? And what are some of the ways that we can improve it over time? Yeah. So before I answer the HRV on that aspect, I would say I, I agree with Brian and Andy. Their book, Unplugged, is awesome. I love mm -hmm. it. And I don't think they're against technology. They're just making sure that it's useful and not replacing your own intuition, right? Mm. So technology can be feedback to help you get in better touch with your own intuition. The other part, too, is that some stressors are actually unconscious, right? So sometimes you'll have something go on and it may take me days to figure out what it was. Now, that's not that often. I'd say now it's probably maybe 10% of the time. But you do have weird stuff like that that will uh, show up. Um, HRV in terms of strength and power, in terms of absolute prediction of performance, is pretty poor. It's really not that good, right? Because I used to get emails when I started doing this on people, the clients, six years ago. They'd be like, hey, uh, HRV, uh, you said it's great, blah, blah, blah. And like, I got a red score. I went to the gym. I hit a new PR. Bah, HRV is crap. You don't know anything. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> Of course you can do that, right? Because it's just saying if you're red that you're higher on the sympathetic tone. Uh, for someone who's competing in powerlifting or maybe even CrossFit or obstacle course race, I actually want them to be a little bit sympathetic the day of that competition. Like if they're really, really parasympathetic, I get worried at that point because they've gone too far. Their performance is normally going to be down. The caveat, though, is you can't do that every day and day in and day out. All right, so if I take my little blue Jetta and I redline it, I can get to the grocery store faster. But if I do that every single day, there's going to be a cost on the engine and on the vehicle. So I think HRV is 
very good at telling you all stressors on your autonomic nervous system. And it's not telling you per se performance. And there's really no single indicator of predictive capacity for performance other than some type of performance itself, right? Maybe, you know, speed on a lift, things like that. Maybe those are pretty good predictive, but again, that's very specific too. Um, so I think it's a little bit of an over thing to expect that one variable is going to tell you everything about your performance. However, over the long term, it's going to give you a really good idea of are you, you know, kind of staying neutral or is your training and lifestyle kind of driving you to become more and more stressed? Or are you maybe not pushing enough? Maybe you have the capacity to push harder than what you could. In terms of what makes a difference on it, all the standard stuff helps. Uh, sleep's probably a big one, right? That's not a new, that's not a shock to anybody else. Um, the caveat also with sleep is there is a delay. So when I first got in and was doing this, I was like, okay, I got five hours of sleep last night, do my HRV in the morning. Oh, it's good. Wait a minute. I thought it was going to be crap. I only got five hours of sleep. And so I would do it again and again. And on the weekend, I'd sleep in. Like, oh man, I got 11 hours of sleep. Woohoo! HRV is going to be amazing. It wasn't so good. I'm like, wow, well, wait a minute. What the hell's going on? And if you think about it, you're like, HRV more corresponds to sleep debt, which is a much bigger acute stressor. All right. So if I have a lot of good sleep and I get one night, I'm probably going to be okay. And I generally feel okay then. But if I needed to sleep 11 hours, I probably have a lot of stress and a lot of processes that just need recovery because I had to sleep 11 hours in order to do it. So sleep is a little weird in that it seems to correspond more to the sleep debt than it does to necessarily acute changes. Uh, so sleep helps. Uh, nutrition can help if you have people sometimes who are under eating or are doing what I call a kind of a, a mismatch, right? So I'm hardcore ketogenic and I'm going to go try to be a CrossFit competitor. Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to go to a sport that's highly glycolytic and I'm going to remove carbohydrates. You'll see a massive uh, spike in stress with that. And again, that doesn't mean neither one of those are good or bad. It's just a mismatch of what you're trying to do. Um, outside of that, things that can improve it, I found. Um, I've tested all sorts of stuff for six years, and there's a lot of stuff that acutely can change it on a day-by-day -day basis, but you kind of need to do it each day. And I would throw okay. meditation and breath work into that. Um, if you can get someone, I can get them on a table, and I could do a bunch of stuff and radically change their breathing rate in a couple hours, uh, that'll actually stick pretty good. Um, them doing like meditation for 10, 15, 20 minutes in the morning, over time you will see a benefit, but day to day you don't see a massive um, shift on that. Again, that kind of, that's like sleep and brushing your teeth and things of that nature, right? There's things you should just do as being a good human every day that are going to be beneficial. Uh, things that I've seen that have a big change that will stay for more than one day as a, i.e. just an acute intervention for myself, have been I did some RPR, reflexive performance reset, which was then called Be Activated. It's a system from Doug Heal. Uh, I had some, like I mentioned earlier in the show, some wonky eye stuff. Uh, Doug did some eye work on me that was really crazy. I could see a ball coming in and catch it, and see all the letters in 3D and catch it. Uh, my HRV went up 15 points and actually stayed up for like three days. Oh wow! Which was crazy. Right. So if I take a day off and I do a lot of breath work and I relax, I can get maybe a five point jump. If I'm really beat up, maybe a six or seven point jump. But the next day, it'll kind of even out a little bit. 
So there's a lot of stuff you can do acutely that'll make a difference, but not over a couple of days. Uh, so that made a big difference. Um, the other part is because I have a scar, a midline scar, uh, I did some work on a dolphin micropoint stimulator or microcurrent where they go and they run microcurrent across the scar on both sides in order to try to repolarize it and increase ATP. And I don't understand the exact mechanism, to be honest. <laughs> I don't even know if they do. Um, but it went up again, about 13 to 15 points, stayed for like three days. Uh, last one was some uh, stuff through functional neurology. Uh, so different assessment, different drills to kind of reactivate part of my brain that wasn't working as well. Um, he also did some like cold laser to specific areas of the brain and that kind of stuff. Um, so those things from a pure intervention standpoint, which again, people may or may not have access to. If someone has a very, very low baseline, if they're looking for uh, interaction to get it up or an intervention. Um, but again, the standard stuff is very helpful. But again, it's a long-term increase and at minimum, not much of a decrease. And the last one is actually just old school aerobic training. You know, since I've done more aerobic training, I find that my energy level is much better. My ability to handle stress is much better. My ability actually to train lifting weights, I can do a higher volume than what I could. My recovery time between sets is a lot better. Dr. And Andy my HRV is way higher than it was before chronically. Yeah. Um, and that makes, so as a, a training thing, I think aerobic training, especially if you're on the lower end of the spectrum, and mine wasn't horrible. I mean, mine was, you know, 38, uh, you know, VO2 score. Not great by any means, but it's not like field mouse status at, you know, 20 or something pathological. Um, but getting close up into the 40s and the high 40s made a big difference for me. And most of the athletes I've worked with too. Quick break to tell you all about the most important purchase you'll make for your body, mind, recovery, athleticism, and sleep in the game. It's called WHOOP, W-H-O-O-P, and it is a performance analysis, sleep analysis, recovery analysis device that goes right on your wrist and links to your phone. You get all sorts of data from how much REM sleep you actually get in a night to how much deep sleep you get in a night, the weekly averages, how much you need based on the fact that you may have some sleep debt coming up. You may not have gotten a great night of sleep the night before, or maybe you busted your ass in the gym and you need a little enhanced recovery. All this stuff is worked into an amazing algorithm and they use machine learning in the app to help decipher what are the different ways they can analyze and look at your data. And what do they report back to you? Everything you need to know about how hard to train, when to back off, how to go injury-free, and how to get the most out of your training and your sleep. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter code word Kyle for $30 off a new subscription. Yeah, yeah. Doc, we had Dr. Andy Galpin on a while back. Yeah, and I love Andy. He was talking about that. Like, if you're a if, whether you're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder, yeah. to not negate aerobic training. And even 100%. I remember Arnold Schwarzenegger had said that uh, it was there's like an old photo of him running on Venice Beach with Franco Colombo and, and Joe Weider. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, I wish I had run more often. Uh, you know, that not yeah. negated the importance of that aerobic base. Yeah. Um, what are some of the best ways to build that? Because, you know, guys like Dr. Peter Atia and different people have really, and I'm sure yourself included, have really stressed the importance of like zone two, very low threshold. You know, the to give an example, if you're jogging, to be able to hold a conversation with someone you're jogging right. with. In the old school or, talk test. Yeah, or yeah. nose breathing pace where you're yep. just going to stay nose breathing the whole time. That's pretty much going to lock you into the low tech zone too without having to wear a heart rate sure. monitor or look at stuff in real time. 
Um, how do you find balance between that and then when to push with high intensity interval training? And and how would you really, I mean, as a base layer, I know one of the things we talked about was how do you influence somebody who's never lifted a weight in their life and done on, yeah. anything? And it's like, <laughs> I don't think anybody's starting with those people. Hopefully right. not, right? right? And I know you work with, with some high-end people. So how do you take somebody that's already has a good base layer of fitness and has been lifting weights for 10 years and knows kind of the way around the gym. How do you take that person and increase them to the next level with the balance in building aerobic capacity? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I do now that's different even than a couple of years ago is I actually run, as I mentioned, a full assessment. And if you had to put a gun to my head and okay, you can only pick one test. Um, and again, I got this from Dr. Kenneth J is just do a 2k test. Your first one, I actually had a guy I met with a paleo effects. He texted me on the <clears throat> way over here. I'm like, okay, just go do this. Send me your data. It'll give us a baseline of what your VO2 max is. The equation's pretty good. It's going to suck. It's not going to be a lot of fun. And he, he texted me to his time and he goes, oh, yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> is this, this is the sprint on the 2K, on the, on the Concept 2 rower? Yep. So go 2K. on the Concept 2 rower, set it for 2,000 meters. And then go as fast as you can. Now, obviously, it's 2,000 meters, so you're going to have to pace yourself. Uh, but most people are going to be maybe seven to eight, maybe nine-minute range, somewhere in there. And it feels pretty brutal. But then you have a baseline of uh, where you're going to be at. Now, it is true if you train that, you are going to see some learning effect. You'll get better at just doing the test. But it gives you a baseline without having fancy equipment or anything else. I find most meatheads can get on a rower and do it. There's not a, I get, you can do running. You can do a Cooper run test. But I've seen the way some people walk around and I don't want them to run real hard. You know, it makes me really nervous. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I think the rower is a little bit better for that. They usually score better on a rower because it's more speed and power. So once they have that, then I look to see, well, okay, where are you at and what are your goals, right? If you want to be an elite power lifter or an elite CrossFit or obstacle course person, those are going to be different. But you're probably going to need some work. Um, I also look at their baseline heart rate variability. Um, another good one that people just forget about is just AM waking, resting heart rate. Mm. You know, if your AM waking, resting heart rate is 74, I can absolutely guarantee you're going to need some aerobic work. Um, if it's in the 60s, you're better. Ideally, most people just back of the envelope, I want to see lowish 50s seated first thing in the morning. And that's pretty low by health and general population standpoint. But I find once they kind of get to that level, uh, they perform a lot better. So usually if they're pretty poor off, I'll just start them with more low intensity work. I'll run that for probably about four to eight weeks. Uh, my buddy Luke Lehman, who runs Muscle Nerds, he calls it the, the least mode, right? The least mode versus the beast mode. And you probably <laughs> have to do least mode before you can be beast mode. <laughs> so I really like that. In terms of a template, um, I'll still have them lift unless they're really, really bad off. Um, but they'll lift maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do some aerobic stuff, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Okay. So I want to get at least three to four days in. Um, all things being equal, if they were horrible, I may drop that to one or two lifting days and just run more aerobic stuff after that. So you really need a volume effect. Um, like you said, you know, low zone two. I like just using the nasal breathing thing. Mm -hmm. Get on a rower, do 20 minutes. Um, breathe only through your nose. So maybe only do that for a couple of weeks. The cool part again about the rower is, I just feel like I need to add concept two should sponsor me or something. But <laughs> it's you a great get, machine. It's awesome because you get all the metrics automatically and you just log it. You put it in the logbook. There's a programs you can put and just sync to your phone. 
I can pop in online and see every session that they've done. I see all the settings in the machine. I see all the power outputs. And if you want to be just super simple, if it's a 20 minute uh, thing you're doing, are they rowing a little bit longer in distance each week over the course of that week? Because you've capped the time. And some people only have like 20 or 30 minutes, right? Yeah. And you may need to work them up a little bit above that. But once they get to a pretty good number and they've been doing that for maybe four to six weeks, uh, then I'll throw in some intensity stuff. A uh, simple test you can do is just get on the rower, do a 500 meter test and see where they're at on that. So if you're only to do two tests, uh, 2K will give you pretty good aerobic capacity. Uh, 500 meter will give you pretty good anaerobic capacity. And that gives you a marker on each end and gives you an idea of how far to skew each one. So if their 500 meter test is amazing and their 2K is not so good, yeah, maybe more on the aerobic side. And they do kind of cross over. Give us, give us some examples of what you would consider amazing, average, and poor for the 500 yeah. meter and 2000 meter. So uh, Concept2 has them all on their site, which is super cool. So you can look and see as a percentage of the population on the data they have where you rate. Um, so in general, I like most people to hit to be within the 75th percentile. And this is right? based on age, uh, age and weight, okay. and that type of thing. Um, so just some rough numbers. Like, so for myself, when I first did a 500 meter, uh, God, three years ago now, it was horrible. I'd never even been on a rower in my life. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And like all people, I start out, ah, this is, this is great. And I'm hammering it. Like 30 seconds in, I feel like I want to die and I've only gone like 150 meters. I go, this is horrible. (laughs) Like I got two minutes and 20 seconds or something, you know, just pretty abysmal. But, you know, within a couple of weeks, just by practice, I got down to two minutes, which is still pretty abysmal. And I got to 150. And then uh, so for me, I'm 44. I'm technically by rowing standards considered in the heavyweight male uh 75th percentile would be a time of 132. so that's my goal for the end of this year is hit 132. my pr right now is 135. Um, just before this i just did one just for the hell of it and got 142 even though i haven't rode too much in the past couple of weeks because of travel mm. um so 2k for myself uh, for me to get in the 75th percentile is seven minutes and 10 seconds uh, the first time i did an actual 2k i remember reading an old article by eric cressy and I was like, oh, I should try that. So I tried it about, it was a year year ago. And I got 8.35. And after some work, I got down to around eight minutes and then got to 7.40. So my PR right now is 7.35. Okay. So Rushi and I have a little informal competition. So I think he got 7.32 the other day, the bastard. <laughs> so I got to go home and do one again. But um, so that gives me an idea of where I should be. Uh, in terms of general times and things things of that nature. Um, and it's also nice to see comparative data to other people. Now, that data pool is probably skewed because these are people who are interested in rowing. These are people who know enough to actually log their data, to actually go on a site and actually look it up. So you're probably pretty skewed to the high end there. Uh, but the amount of work to go from, say, 75th percentile to 90, oh, man, from 90 to, like, elite status, I mean, that's a whole different universe. That's a whole different animal and the health benefits are probably not really going to be that great, right? Yeah. Just like anything else, right? At what point as a, a male human, how much should you be able to deadlift, right? And we can sit around and throw out numbers and maybe it's 400, whatever. But to take my deadlift from, let's say, 400 to 500, 
I'm probably not going to be that much more healthy. I may even start to go the wrong direction at some point, right? So there's a lot of these U-shaped curves, right? If I don't deadlift at all, I'm an injury waiting to happen. I start deadlifting, I get to a certain strength. Ooh, I'm much better. But at some point, if I keep pushing it in terms of health, not performance, I'm going to now start be going down on the other side. It's almost like Maslow's hierarchy for health. Right. Like if you don't have a home, odds are you need need a fucking home. But once you have the home and you're doing well, you don't need the $30 billion home because of the fact that that's not going to create that much more for you in that term. You can only be in one room in any house, right? Yeah. And so final answer on that is that if you go back to the low intensity and you're doing good, your numbers are creeping up, then I'll actually start adding some higher intensity stuff. I may have you do a 500. I have some specific interval programs that we use at the Kerrigan Institute that are really good. It's like a repeats of 100 meters and then 200, and then 300, and then 400, and then 500 at very specific wattages with only 30 seconds rest between each one. Oh, wow. And then you rest three to five minutes and then go again. So I'll, I'll have people work up on that to maybe like five rounds over the course of several weeks. And that one's just really brutal. But if you look at the research on it, it's really good at increasing everything from 2K to even 500 meter time, mm. right? So some interval programs like that are definitely useful if they're programmed correctly. Because my fear is everything in fitness, there's this big, massive response from one end to the other. And now what we're starting to see is almost, I think, a little bit too much on the, the least mode side where people are afraid of adding in some interval work. And at some point, you, you can only get so much better with that. Right. At some point, if your job and let's say your goal is to get a faster 500 meter or a 2K or even to run a friggin marathon, at some point you have to go faster. Right. At some point, (laughs) you're going to have to push up the intensity a little bit. But no one wants to hear the answer of, well, it depends on context and depends on where you're at. Right. Everybody wants to be, oh, just only do high intensities, bro, because that burns, you know, much more calories and it's just much more hardcore. And now it's almost a little bit, ah, you know, just go do some slow runs and you'll be fine. That's a good place to start. And there's huge benefits to doing that. But staying there for like the rest of your life with every aerobic session, what you'll see is your 2K times or your aerobic capacity will get capped, Mm. right? And you're also missing that whole lactate area, that high intensity zone. Balance, the key to all of it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, How crazy is that? (laughs) That's awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, we I do have to jump back on with Paul here in a minute. Yeah. But I wanted to get uh, some of the ways that you like to hack parasympathetic because we've been sure. talking about HRV and obviously improving that score. It is a measurement of the beats in between. And to have that have a wider range means we are in parasympathetic mode. So what are some of the ways that you tap into that through breath work or meditation or different things? Yeah, so I think any type of breath work meditation is going to be beneficial. Uh, again, it depends on what type of work you're doing. Uh, so like a Wim Hof type style, I think is really good to get people who are very type A, like they can't settle their mind at all. Like I'll have them do three rounds of like the Wim Hof and then just how like pretend you're dead, right? Pretend there's someone scanning around and they don't want to see you breathe at all, right? How low can you comfortably get your breathing, right? So try to get that rate then as low as possible. So you get someone to kind of go from high to low. I get a little concerned about people doing Wim Hof all the time because that actually is a little bit more on the sympathetic side. Mm -hmm. But I think it does work good to to clear the mind out and to prepare you for other stuff. Um, I think old school, I call it the Zen stare at a tree style meditation is good. You have a visual input, but it's limited just by sitting and breathing. 
I find that that's a very hard style to get people into because there's nothing to really quote unquote distract you per se. Uh, it's probably maybe a little bit more practical. Um, so I do combinations of that. Uh, you can do box breathing and Brian has a bunch of different protocols. A lot of what I find is just what does someone actually feel better from and what are they going to actually do? And that's just where I'm going to have them start. And after that, you can argue back and forth about what's beneficial. Uh, then doing some type of their own hands-on work, I think is helpful. Getting those ribs opened up, getting that uh, better movement. And then I, th- <clears throat> I would love to see a study that compared meditation in the morning to meditation at night. Mm. I think meditation at night is more beneficial for relaxation, getting into kind of a sleep mode. My gut feeling is that meditation in the morning is better as an overall translation to better parasympathetic tone. I'm not quite so sure that that's because of that 10 minutes of better breathing. I think that's helpful. But if you look at how often we breathe during the day, I'm not convinced that that's going to have a massive effect. But what I do think there probably is a big effect from is you have that anchor of that period of time that you can remember, oh, that was nice and relaxed. Remember how chill I felt good. And when you get more stressed during the day, you've got a bigger differential during that day to compare it to. And that your awareness of being stressed, I think, will be much higher. Right. So the joke I make in Minnesota is if you come see me and we do a bunch of work on you or whatever, my goal is to get you basically as parasympathetic as I can by the time that you leave. I want the biggest comparison I can get in the shortest amount of time because I want your nervous system to realize, wow, something crazy just happened. So I want you to continue those habits after you leave. So in Minnesota, if you're outside and it's 20 below, you walk inside and I have it set at like 63 degrees. You're like, holy crap, it's like super warm in here. This is great. But if you've been sitting in there all day like my wife and you're like, God, it's freezing cold in here. It's 62 <laughs> degrees, right? Because there's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. So I think getting that nice block of quiet relaxation time, whatever that is for you, gives you that chance to have that shorter comparison to during the day to catch yourself more when your breathing shifts or you become more stressed. And then you can do something about it to kind of bring it back down again. Yeah, so you don't you stay remember. in that elevated state for long periods of time and just become oblivious to it. Yeah, you give people a reference point they can remember and recall and try to right. navigate their way back to that at different intervals during the day is incredibly important. Yeah. Well, dude, it's been excellent cool. having you on. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really yeah, appreciate it. I would it, love to come out to you and, and be a yeah, guinea pig in out, your man. labs and, and get, <laughs> get all the testing done. There's yeah, certainly. I'm, I retired from fighting in a professional, you know, athlete career five years ago now. Oh, wow. But I still love pushing myself in all yeah. directions. And I think that's fun. So so thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for letting me pick your brain. And uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, best two places are probably just the website. The main website is just MikeTNelson.com. Uh, the other one is FlexDiet.com. F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Those are probably the best two places that they can find me. Awesome, brother. Thank you cool. so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast with Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge. Hope you guys enjoyed this one, and I'll see you next week.